morning, Sovereign Grace. It's so great to see so many of you on a three-day weekend. I'm excited to see you and worship with you this morning. My name is Russell Horner. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege to continue to make our way through the book of Psalms. Well, we are diving right into the Word, so please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 52. We have nine verses this morning. This is our last Sunday in the Psalms for a little while. We'll be back in Genesis next week, which we're excited about. But we have a wonderful psalm to dwell on this morning. Psalm 52, verses 1 through 9. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our Lord. To the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear, and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. And sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of of the godly. Let's pray. Father, your word reminds us that the blessed man is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in your law. And Lord, on your law, he meditates both day and night. So Father, we come to meditate on your law today to be encouraged and strengthened, to be the blessed man as we look to the blessed man, Jesus Christ, in faith. Father, help us to that end so that you would be glorified in and through us. pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. One of my favorite little scenes in the Gospels is in Mark chapter 9. And it's one of those scenes that most people don't even notice Most people read right past it because it's not really a big event. It's not Jesus walking on water. It's not his crucifixion. It's not a big miracle like that. It's not in a really profound teaching section like the Sermon on the Mount. No, it's just one of those little passing moments in between a lot of big moments when Jesus just simply turns to the disciples to talk about greatness. And Jesus begins this conversation with just a harmless little question in Mark 9.33. You don't have to turn there, but this is what Jesus says. What were you discussing on the way? And then the next verse says, but the disciples kept 
silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. You can picture this awkward scene, can't you? Jesus kind of leans in as they get home and says, Hey, what were you guys talking about back there? Sounds like it was kind of important. And immediately all of them go silent. Like all of them are like a little kid who's been caught with their hand in the cookie jar, right? They did something wrong. Nobody say a word. Nobody mention anything. Nobody talk about what we were actually talking about. Maybe he'll forget us. But definitely no one wanted to say, oh, that? We were talking about who's the greatest. And we know why, don't we? Because we know that can get really, really ugly. And we expect Jesus in a moment like that to rebuke his disciples, to say something like, haven't you been paying attention? Haven't you seen all that I've done? Clearly, I'm the greatest. Look at the miracles. Look at the teaching. Just a few days before this moment, three of the disciples saw Jesus transfigured. They got to see the Father proclaim the Son's greatness in His presence. How could they even have a conversation like that? Or maybe some of us are expecting Jesus to say, well, you know what? None of you are really that great. (laughs) None of you have really proven yourself to be faithful and worthy You've proven yourself to be sinful. Peter, just a couple days ago, I called you Satan. How could you be in the running for the greatest? Or maybe what most of us expect is Jesus to say, you know what? Greatness is behind you. Greatness is something of the world. If you want to follow me, you just need to leave your ideas of greatness behind you. That's for the world to take care of, not you. You're my disciples. But the shocking thing is what Jesus does next. He sits them down. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't even really correct them. He actually affirms them and encourages them for seeking greatness. He says, essentially, look, you want to be great? That's really good. In fact, I want my disciples to be thinking about greatness. But you know what? First, let me define it for you. Let me tell you what greatness really is. And then Jesus says in Mark 9.35, if anyone would be first or great, he must be last of all, and servant of all. So Jesus is making sure that his disciples know there's a difference between greatness in the eyes of the world and greatness in the eyes of God. There's clear distinction there. And I believe that's what David is doing here, even in Psalm 52, where Jesus defines greatness and then models greatness for his disciples to show the difference. David is going to define greatness by contrast. He's going to give us two images, two descriptions of mighty men in Psalm 52 to show us the difference between greatness in the eyes of the world and greatness in the eyes of God. And so that's what we'll see as we walk through this psalm. Two distinct parts. The first part will be the mighty men of the world in verses 1 through 7. That's greatness in the world's eyes. And the second will be the mighty man of God or greatness in God's eyes, verses 6 through nine. We'll see who these men are and what they do and where they're headed so that we too can become mighty men of God. And what does that look like? It looks like becoming those who fear and trust the Lord by making Christ our refuge, even in the face of evil. Now, before we get into the verses, you probably noticed there's some historical details, again, in this superscript like last week that we need to deal with because it's the context for this psalm. So look at the superscript with me again. It says, To the choir master, 
a masculine, a psalm of instruction, in other words, and it's written by David. Now here's the detail. When Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now I'm guessing most of us probably don't remember who Doeg is. It's kind of a one-hit wonder in the Bible in many ways, but he doesn't have a good reputation. It's not a good part of his life for sure. His story is in 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. I encourage you to go read that later. But for the sake of time, let me summarize who Doeg is. Doeg's story actually starts with David's story. When David was anointed king and Saul didn't like it, he was jealous. We remember what happened. He ran David off. And David ran first to the city called Nob. And it was the city of priests. The high priest at the time lived there and his name was Ahimelech. And so David runs to the house of Ahimelech for help, which is a good thing because Ahimelech knew David, but he did not know that he was on the run from Saul. And Ahimelech trusted David. He had already helped David numerous times in his life, and he knew David was a faithful servant of the king. He knew he's been Saul's right-hand man. He's even Saul's son-in-law. So of course he trusted David, and he didn't even hesitate to help him. He gave him food right out of the tabernacle, the showbread for him and his men. And then he even gave him the sword of Goliath so that he could defend himself. But the sad part of the story begins because in the city of Nob, there was a man there that saw Ahimelech help David and his name was Doeg. Doeg wasn't a priest, even though he was in the city of priests. He wasn't a soldier. There was really nothing mighty about Doeg. There's nothing really noble about him or his profession. He was a shepherd, a herdsman, maybe a chief herdsman, maybe in charge of Saul's livestock, but that's it. And we find in the superscript and in 1 Samuel 22 that he's also an Edomite, which is our first red flag. Because if you remember, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. They were not part of the chosen line of Jacob. And they were very successful men in the world's eyes. They were mighty men in terms of the world's standards. But they always proved to be the enemies of God. And the enemies of goodness. And Doeg would live up to his family reputation. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 22, Saul is putting on the political pressure to find David. He starts to bribe his own people. Offering them wealth and glory and power if they would just help him find David and kill him. And that was what Doeg was looking for. Because he was eager to make a name for himself. So he stepped forward and he told Saul that he saw Ahimelech help David in the city of Nob. And so Saul called in Ahimelech, the high priest, accused him of treason. Ahimelech, of course, defended himself, said, I had no reason to doubt David. I serve David to serve you. But it didn't matter to Saul. He wanted Ahimelech and everyone else to help David to pay. So listen to what Saul said in 1 Samuel 22, verse 16. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Because their hand also is with David, and they knew he had fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. That was a brave thing they did. Could cost them their life. Show that these men feared God more than they feared Saul. 
but not Doeg. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. He killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. 85 priests. And Nob, the city of the priests, the city that helped David, he put them to the sword. Both men and women and children and nursing infant. Ox, donkey, and sheep, he put all of them to the sword. Doeg murdered an entire city just to get in Saul's good graces. Just to make a name for himself, to become a mighty man of the world. But one of the sons of Ahimelech escaped. He found David and told David what happened. Of course, David is a wreck. Hundreds of people dead just because they helped him. And so out of his sorrow and his anger, he wrote Psalm 52. And he wrote this psalm to teach the church for generations to come the differences between the mighty man of the world and the mighty men of God. And so we see first the mighty man of the world and who that mighty man is in verse 1 as we read this. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty Man. Now, the title of mighty man was actually a very great honor in David's day. It was given to people that were brave in battle, that honored the Lord by the way that they fought and the victories they had. The mighty men were essentially kind of like Navy SEALs, maybe Green Berets or Special Forces today. And the title of mighty man was almost as if you're giving someone the Medal of Honor. David names many mighty men in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And you know what? Doeg is not on that list. But here, Doeg is called a mighty man. And it's just dripping with sarcasm and scorn. It's like David is saying, oh, look, big Doeg. You big hero. You mighty warrior. Oh, yeah, it takes a real big hero to kill the priests of God. To kill the anointed ones of God. It takes a real brave warrior to murder innocent children. And women, oh, big hero, no, you're a fool, Doeg. You're an idiot. Why? Because you boast in evil. You know it's wrong, but you delight to do it anyway. Just to make a name for yourself. And you forget, Doeg, you forget this is not your world. It's not Saul's world. He's not the one you should fear. This is God's world which is what the rest of the verse reminds us of. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. It's almost like David is saying, I don't care how powerful you think you are. I don't care what glory or honor you've been given by powerful people. It doesn't matter. God is in charge. God is on his throne. And as long as God is on his throne, his steadfast love will endure against all evil. Don't you see, Doeg? Only a fool. Only a fool does this and trusts in himself. Only a fool sets himself against God and against God's anointed, as Jason read earlier for us. So who is the mighty man of the world? Essentially, he's the fool that trusts in himself. And then what does he do? Well, he uses his tongue to destroy. Look at verse 2. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. 
Now this is alluding to what a mighty man actually is. The weapon of a true mighty man is his sword. It's a sharp razor. He uses it in battle to honor the Lord and to defend the weak. But what's Doeg's weapon of choice? It's not a sharp sword. It's a sharp tongue. It's a deceitful tongue. He doesn't use it to defend the weak. He uses it to destroy the weak and deceive the weak. He doesn't use it to honor the Lord. He uses it to honor himself, to build up his own reputation and to defend only himself. But then David goes on to say, well, his problem really isn't just his words or his actions. His problem runs much deeper than that because his words are a symptom of a wicked heart. As Jesus says in Luke 6.45, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or in other words, what comes out of our mouth is a reflection of what's in our heart. That is a scary reality if we stop and think about it, isn't it? Look at what's in the mighty man of the world's heart. Look what he loves, verse 3. You love evil more than good and lying. More than speaking what is right, you love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Now he gives him a new title. Not mighty man, deceit tongue, like worm tongue almost. That's kind of what he's saying here. Why does Doeg love evil and delight in evil? He doesn't just do evil, he enjoys it. Well, because Doeg loves himself at the end of the day. All of his lies and deceit are for self-preservation and self-glorification. He deceives to build himself up, to glorify himself instead of God. He lies to tear anyone down who stands in his way. Now some of you might be thinking, especially if you remember Doeg, if you've been listening carefully, well, wait a minute, did Doeg actually lie? It kind of sounds like he told the truth. He told Saul, what David did and what Ahimelech did, he just told the truth. How can David accuse him of lies? It's true, Doeg did tell the truth, but he told the truth with the purpose of evil, which is still deceit. Yes, brothers and sisters, it matters very much how we tell the truth. Our motive matters greatly to God, which is why Jesus can say things like, you're guilty of murder if you've ever hated someone in your heart. I love what the Westminster Larger Catechism says about this. It's talking about the ninth commandment and lying. It says, we lie when we speak the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end. That's what Doeg did, didn't he? He didn't speak the truth in love. He spoke the truth in hatred as a weapon to harm and destroy. He spoke the truth maliciously. You know, we can do the same thing, can't we? So easily. And so often. Kids, you know you do this too, don't you? Have you ever spoken the truth to get someone in trouble? Not because they sinned necessarily. Maybe they just did something you didn't like or your parents didn't like, but you spoke the truth to get them in trouble. Your teachers or your parents call that tattling. It's sin. It's evil. Speaking the truth like Doeg here to destroy You know what, adults, we're not off the hook either, though, are we? We do the same thing. Just we're more creative about it. We're better at excusing it. Have you ever spoke the truth to get revenge? To tear someone down, to get someone back, also you could look great? I bet you have. 
We just call that social media today. We call it cancel culture or whatever you want to do. That's the way our culture is. Tear the people down so we can appear on top. Or have you ever presented half-truths about yourself to get people to support you? To get people to back you up, to even fight for you in your favor? We call that politics today. We call that good business. We say things like, you know what, the end justifies the means. It's not personal. It's just business. It's just being resourceful. It's being a shrewd businessman. You have to be like a doeg. To succeed in this world. It's a dog-eat-dog world. It's the way it is. No, it's lying. It's boasting in evil like Doeg. Building our own little kingdoms to glorify ourselves. I bet most of us are so used to using our tongue as a weapon, we barely even think about it anymore. We barely even hesitate. Because we're constantly justifying it. Saying, well, this is just the way the world works. Really? What's the end of people like Doeg? Where do they end up? What's their destiny? Well, their destiny is destruction. Look at verse 5. But God will break you down forever. Those are terrifying words. The mighty man of this world that is bent on destruction will himself be destroyed in the end. That's the ultimate judgment against the mighty man. And David is speaking prophetically here. This is what will happen. And I believe David, as God's anointed, speaks in the place of Christ here. So this is Christ's voice as well. As the final prophet and as the king of this world who will come in judgment to judge people like Doeg and those that delight in evil. So we should hear Christ's voice here saying, Saul, Doeg, anyone else? who delights in evil, who boasts in evil, you will not get away with it. I know you think nobody knows. I know you think that God has just forgotten this one, or that judgment is so long way off that it's not coming. Judgment is on your doorstep. God will not be mocked. And His judgment is terrible, and righteous, and perfectly just, and eternal. Look at the middle of verse 5. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. It will be the sudden judgment like snatching someone out of their tent. Now what does he mean by tent here? There's actually a little bit of a debate on what this could be. The tent could be referring to the tabernacle of God. So the wicked will be pulled out from the dwelling place of God, no longer having communion with God or his people, no longer having a means to atone for their sin. Which is a terrible reality in itself. I think what this is actually talking about in terms of tent is actually the family of the wicked. The house of the wicked. The little kingdom that they build for themselves with their wickedness. And so what God is saying here by snatching them out of his tent is saying, I'm going to wipe out you and your entire family line. Which is perfect justice, by the way. So you remember what Saul said to Himelech. And him like, I'm going to wipe out you and your entire house. And God's turned that around and says, no, that's what I'm going to do to you. But it gets even worse. Look at the end of verse 5. He will uproot you from the land of the living. God will kill you. You will die physically and eternally in hell. That's the final judgment. 
And this picture of being uprooted like a tree, this imagery comes right out of Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verses 3 through 5. The blessed man is like the tree planted in streams of water where the roots go down deep and they're healthy so that they yield its fruit in its season and the leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. Why? Because God will uproot them. God knows that wicked fruit shows us that there is a wicked root. And so just like a weed, God pulls the root all the way out so there's no sign of wickedness ever again. God destroys them entirely and completely in hell. But he doesn't just destroy their house. God will destroy their reputation as well, which is really important to a mighty man of the world as they're mocked in the end. Look at verse 6. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. I wonder how you respond to that. I bet most of us, our gut reaction is to look at that and think, that doesn't seem right. It seems like something the righteous shouldn't do. It kind of seems like something Doeg might do to laugh at someone's misery. Are we going to be the ones to laugh when people are going to hell? This is where we have to be really, really careful to not think of ourselves as more holy than the Bible or to put ourselves in a place above God and his word. Because we might assume that the righteous can't mock or laugh at the wicked, but God does. God does in the psalm we read earlier, in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. God is saying, look at these foolish people. Think they can assault me? God's prophets mock the wicked. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 27. Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal for calling out to a God that's not there. He says, oh look, you better call louder. He's going to the bathroom or something. He mocks them and they laugh at him because they are being foolish. The Psalms and the Proverbs again and again talk about the stupidity of the wicked who dig a hole and make a trap for God's people, but then they're dumb enough to fall into the trap themselves. So the bottom line is sin is idiocy. It's more than that, but it is definitely that. Sin is foolishness. It deserves to be mocked. It deserves to be exposed for what it is. And look, the righteous have been mocked for millennia since the fall by the wicked for choosing God's way. But in divine justice, in the end, this verse shows us that it is the righteous who will have the last laugh. And this is not a boastful, prideful laughter. This is a laugh of victory. A laugh of salvation. It's God's people celebrating that they're saved from the foolishness of sin. From this foolishness, which they confess in verse 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. That's foolish right there. That's evil. This is what happens when a mighty man of this world meets the perfect justice of God. 
This is what it looks like when someone gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul, as Jesus says in Matthew 16. Certainly this is a warning for us. Don't be a doeg. Don't be Saul. Don't be a fool. Make God your refuge. And we'll talk more about that in a second as we get into the mighty man of God. But I bet some of us are actually wondering as we read these things, can we do this? Should we pray like David here? For God to judge our enemies in this kind of mocking way of the evil? Well, I believe yes, with some qualifications. It's like I said in the beginning, that can get very ugly very fast. So yes, we should pray this way, as long as we remember, first of all, we are not God or His anointed. It's not our place to divvy up judgment, to bring justice. That's God's place to determine what is just, and we leave that up to Him. Or to David, he's king over Israel. He can determine what is just based on God's law. Secondly, we are also not innocent. And we know that, don't we? We're not any better off than the people that we would call judgment on. We're just as guilty of boasting and evil. That's what blows me away about the placement of this song. What is David condemning Doeg for? Lying and murder. What did David confess last week in Psalm 51? Lying, murder, and adultery. He's no different. The judgment that falls on the wicked should fall on David and us as well if Christ is not our refuge. And third, we should not just, please hear that just, that's important. We should not just pray for the destruction of the wicked. This is not a final verdict. You'll notice that is a warning. Repent, wicked, before this is your end. We as God's people should be the first to pray for the repentance of the wicked. We should be eager to preach the gospel so that the wicked and those that boast in evil repent and trust the Lord and glorify Him. And if they continue in their wickedness, we should also be the first to pray for justice. The prayer on the lips of God's people should be God, redeem them or wipe them out. God, save them. Help them to trust you in their boasting and evil. But if they don't end it, if they don't give it up and repent, Lord, give them what they deserve. This is actually our best defense, really our only defense against evil mighty men in this world. This is what the saint does, the mighty man of God does. And let's start talking about him. We've seen the mighty man of this world. Let's now look at who the mighty man of God is in contrast. So first, who is he? He's the one that trusts in the Lord. Look at verse 6 with me. The righteous shall see. So see, see what exactly? Well, verse 1, the steadfast love of the Lord in contrast to Doeg's boasting and evil. Verse 5, the judgments of the Lord. The terrible judgments that should fall on them. And the righteous, instead of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness... Like the mighty man of the world, how do they respond? The righteous, verse 6, shall see and fear. They won't boast in evil. They won't trust in themselves. They'll do what seems impossible for the mighty man of the world. They will humble themselves before a holy God in fear and reverence, recognizing that they deserve to be uprooted along with the wicked. 
You see, unlike the mighty man of the world who, verse 7, who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, the mighty man of God trusts in the might of his God, not his own hand. The mighty man of God makes Christ his refuge, the true mighty man. Because he's recognized that he has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like Doeg and David and Saul and everyone else since the fall. He's spiritually bankrupt, unable to fix himself. And he recognizes that he deserves destruction. He deserves to be uprooted because he has set himself against the Lord and against his anointed. But the mighty man of God sees the steadfast love of the Lord in Christ. The true mighty man of God. He trusts him for salvation. The one who lived the life that we failed to live, even while mighty men of the world mocked him, ridiculed him, and eventually killed him. He died on the cross taking the wrath that we deserve. He was broken down and uprooted from the land of the living. And he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, conquering sin and death for all who would believe. And now anyone who makes Christ his refuge, who kisses the Son, submits to the Son, like Psalm 2 says, are saved from the wrath to come. And they're brought from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the mighty men of this world, to the kingdom of light, the mighty men of God. And they are being conformed to the image of the only mighty man. Jesus Christ. They're being sanctified to honor God like mighty men should do. Who is the mighty man of the Lord? He's the one who makes Christ his refuge. And then what does he do in response? Well, he thanks God and he waits on God's judgment. Look at verse 9 with me, all the way to the end. I will thank you forever. Now that sounds really nice. And sentimental if we forget where David is. A whole town has been murdered. And Doeg has not been called to account. We read that and say, really, David? You're going to thank God when the wicked prosper? When Saul is trying to hunt you down and kill you? When you are on the run not knowing where your next meal will come from? You're going to thank God now and forever? Why? Well, verse 9, I thank you forever because You have done it. God, this is your plan. This was not a surprise to you. Doeg didn't cause something to change. No, this is your plan for my good and your glory. Now, brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean that we completely understand every aspect of that plan. It doesn't mean that we don't have doubts or worry or wonder what God is up to in our life, that we don't go to God with those doubts like so many of the Psalms have taught us to do. But it does mean we fight for thankfulness. We fight to remember that the steadfast love of the Lord endures all the day, even when the wicked are boasting in evil. And it means we remember that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? mighty man of God can be thankful even in the face of evil because he remembers that God is good and that God is just 
And his son will come to judge all the mighty men of this world one day. So what do we do until then? We wait. We wait for that day. Look at verse 9 again. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. What a contrast. Unlike Doeg, who builds up his own name, his own reputation, who can't wait to strike and to repay and to take vengeance, the mighty man of God waits for God's name to be vindicated. He doesn't build up his name. He knows it's God's reputation on the line. It's his justice that they're testing. And so he waits for God to bring judgment. Oh, you know what that means for us? Brothers and sisters, you know what that means we can do? means we don't have to take judgment into our own hands. We don't have to take vengeance. We don't have to fight for ourselves. Kids, this means that you can actually let go. You don't have to worry about what's right and wrong all the time. You don't have to keep track of everything and thinking that, oh, this is fair and that's unfair. They got more than me. I got less than them. We don't have to do that. We don't have to hurt people back that hurt us because God is their judge. Adults, we don't have to have the last word. We don't have to retaliate. We can be the ones to turn the other cheek, to bear with one another in love. We can be the most loving and forgiving and gracious people in the whole wide world. Why? Because God is our judge. And God is their judge. We can turn it over to him. As Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, the mighty man of God knows he doesn't have to be mighty. Because God is. He's the mighty judge over all. So we've seen who the mighty man of God is and what he does. Now let's look where he's headed. Lastly, at where he's headed. What's his destiny? Is it destruction like the wicked? No, it's he will be blessed by God eternally in his house. Look at verse 8. But I am like a green olive tree. Right back to this tree imagery, aren't we? Again, taken right out of Psalm 1. But notice, please, the contrast here. In verse 5, we learned the wicked are the ones that are uprooted. They're the tree that have no roots anymore, which means they're a dead tree. There's no growth. It might be green for a second, but its greenness is going away. But the people of God, the righteous, are green, not because they're just starting to grow, but because they're healthy. They're growing. They're thriving. They're prospering. And not only that, they're an olive tree, which is an amazing thing to say because olive trees seem to last forever. We have record of olive trees in the Middle East that have lasted for over 2,000 years. Around since the time of Christ. What's David saying here? He's saying, Doeg, Saul, any wicked out there, take a shot at us. Do your worst. God's people are not going anywhere. We will prosper. We will last. We will last into eternal glory. We will not be shaken. Now stop and think where David is when he says this. He's not in a beautiful place in all kinds of comfort. He's on the run. He has no idea where his next meal is coming from. He had to stop at Nob just to get a meal, just to get a sword to defend himself. 
He's in exile. He's been pulled out of his worldly tent. Pulled out from communion with the saints and his family and from worship and the Sabbaths. Pulled out of that reality. And he can't even protect himself or the people he loves. Like the whole town of Nob that got murdered. How could David be this confident? That he's going to last when he's on the run? Is David becoming a mighty man of the world boasting in his own strength here? Absolutely not. Look at the rest of verse 8. But I am like a green olive tree. Where? In the house of God. That's David's tent. His worldly tent might be destroyed. It might look like everything is crumbling around him, but he knows he rests secure eternally in the house of God. His heavenly home. And so he trusts in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. David's not boasting in his own strength. He's boasting in the strength of his God. That even when the mighty men of the world do their worst, all it's going to do is sanctify David and the church, preparing them more for their heavenly home. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the mighty man of God. It's not those who trust in themselves and boast in evil. It's those who trust in the Lord and make Christ their refuge. It's not those who use their tongue to destroy and to deceive. It's those who use their tongue to worship, to honor God, to thank God. And they hold their tongue back and wait for God's judgment. It's not those who will be uprooted and destroyed along with the wicked in the world. But it's those who, if they cling to Christ will grow in grace until they'll make it home one day, safe and sound and looking just like Jesus. They will dwell with God forever in his house. Let's pray that God would make us men and women like this as we look to our mighty man in faith, Jesus Christ, and honor him with our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it humbles us, confronts us in our sin, exposes the pride and the weakness in our heart, the sin and the depravity and the rebellion against you, Father. I pray that as your people, we would be quick to repent of using our words to destroy, of boasting and evil. And Lord, we would be quick to repent because we know you are eager to forgive. You are eager to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness for Christ's sake and make us mighty men in your house forever. Father, we pray that you would do that today as we worship, as we respond in worship. May our lips be filled with praise and thankfulness and trust that no matter what happens to us in this world, you will be the righteous judge overall. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.